Welcome everyone to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center-left to center-right. I'm Mona Charon of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and I'm joined by Bill Galston of Brookings and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Michael Strain. He is Director of Economic Policy Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, and he has a new book coming out this month called The American Dream is Not Dead, But Populism Could Kill It. Love the title. Thank you for joining us. Thank you one and all for being here. Um, We're going to get to the huge events of the week, the impeachment, the State of the Union, the Iowa debacle, all of that. But first, I would like to just spend some time on um, Michael's thesis. He wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal that you can find online. Uh, by the same, roughly the same title, The American Dream is Not Dead. And uh, so, Michael, um, give us the highlights. I mean, there are a number of things that struck me, but um, th- let's start with the one that you hear all the time from populists on the left and on the right, that the middle class has not seen a wage increase in 30 years. Yes. So that is um, uh, something that's argued quite a bit. It's 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 often argued with less precision then uh, you put it. It's often argued, you know, in several decades and many decades, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and uh, it's not only populists who argue that, uh, but uh, populists have really seized on that uh, as a means of advancing their thesis that the economy is rigged for everybody but those at the top and that, you know, the elites conspired with global corporations to do free trade at the expense of the working class, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, the argument that I make is that uh, uh, if you look back over 30 years, which strikes me as, as long enough to go back, and there are several reasons I think uh, it's better not to go back further than that. Um, uh, if you look back over 30 years, for typical workers, workers who aren't managers, um, you know, about 80% of the workforce. You, you mean see, like middle income people? Middle income people, yeah. yeah. Middle income, low income people. Okay. Uh, you know, so just so uh, excluding managers, excluding supervisors, um, which which cuts off about 20%, you know, the, you know, roughly speaking, the top 20% of wage earners. You see that wages have grown by about a third. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that is significant growth it's uh it's it's not stagnation um is it as good as the top one percent have done no uh of course not um is it uh, a a pace of growth that public policy should be satisfied with no of course not there there need to be uh, better policies put in place to encourage faster wage growth um but it isn't stagnation mm-hmm. uh it, it it's it's and that matters because um, people keep hearing that hard work doesn't pay off, that they can't get ahead, um, that the all the benefits, the system is rigged against them. Yeah. All the benefits of, of the economy flow to the top, uh, flow to the elites and not, and not to the people. Um, and that's just, that's just not right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to, to say that. You didn't get into this in your article, but I, I imagine, you, or I'm just, you can tell us whether you talk about this in your book. Um, one of the things that always struck me as um, problematic with this thesis that things have not improved in 30 years is that you look around and you see all the many ways in which ordinary people's lives are so much better 
that may be hard to capture in statistics. You know, the unbelievable efficiency of having iPhones and other kinds of smartphones that, you know, mm -hmm. free us up from getting lost and from, you know, time wasted and all these other things that are really hard to put into GDP numbers, right? Yeah, or or even things that, that, that do go into GDP numbers. I mean, I mean the, 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 the broader argument that quality of life <laughs> hasn't increased for for three decades, which is something that you you also hear a lot. I mean, that that really does border on the absurd. Uh, if you look at statistics about, you know, deaths from heart disease, you know, frequency of air travel. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you know, you, you know, it, it it's very easy to point to the iPhone and, and, and those sorts of technologies. And those are wonderful. I mean, the the value uh, of having mapping software. Um, is just enormous. Yeah. You know, I you know I did not look up how to get here. Yeah. Today, I just yeah. stepped out the front door. Um, yeah. Uh, and and uh, you know, I mean, those of us who are old enough remember using maps. Right. Uh, and and then uh, MapQuest came along, and you could type in the address, and then you would print, you know, your exactly. list of directions. And and you know, younger people don't remember that, but um, you know, life is better. <laughs> yes. Uh, but but but. And but, what about people in the middle class not being able to expect? that they'll do better than their parents did or that their children will do better than they are doing. Yes, yeah, so that's so that's uh, uh, you know inherently a forward-looking um, uh, statistic and, and uh, you know the the argument is that 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 people aren't aren't doing better than their parents. Um, that there's been stagnation, there hasn't been there hasn't you know you know there's not upward mobility. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know that argument is I think also not supported by by the data. Um, if you if you look uh, you know, I do some calculations and uh, roughly three quarters of people have uh, three quarters of 40 year, year olds today uh, have higher household income than their parents had when their parents were in their 40s. If you were raised in the bottom 20 percent, that goes from three quarters up to 86 percent. That's an incredible um, number right there. Yeah. 86 percent of people who started out in the bottom 20 percent yeah. are better off than their parents. Yeah, that's right. At, at, at comparable that's amazing. Um, and, you know, there's every reason to expect that that will continue. Uh, uh, you know, it'd be good if it were 100 percent. I mean, that's, you know, yeah. you know, so it's not, you know, it's not it's not to say that, that everything is perfect. Um, but if you have to choose between uh, the statement America is still upwardly mobile and the statement America is not upwardly mobile. It seems very clear to me that uh, your choice should be uh, in favor of, of upward mobility. So one thing that you mentioned, um, and and I wonder, it, it raised a question in my mind. You talked about um, the changing nature of middle-income jobs, mm -hmm. partly because of automation and changes in technology of various kinds. And you said um, that this, you know, these newer jobs are displacing the old jobs. It's not that so some of those uh, older manufacturing jobs have gone away. They've been replaced by other things. And you say that now there are um, the new middle includes sales representatives, managers of personal services, computer support specialists, event planners, health technologists and technicians, uh, audiovisual technicians, and on and on. And then you, know, you say these jobs require relatively more situational adaptability, social intelligence, and administrative and communication skills than traditional middle-wage jobs. Now, I read that and said, that sounds like jobs that are keyed to the strengths of women, not men. Mm -hmm. What do you, where do you think men are fitting into this new workforce? Well, I think men can fit in there. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think, I think, I think that, that workers, uh, as a general matter, need to adapt 
to the new economy um, and they have a responsibility to try and succeed in the new economy and take advantages of, of, of the options that, that exist for them. Uh, that's not easy. A lot of people are going to find that to be very challenging. Wait a um, minute. You're saying people have to do something for themselves? That is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're – I think that's a thought crime. <laughs> Uh, Linda, do you want to? Yeah, well, I, you know, um, I have not done the kind of work you've done on this, uh, this topic, but it absolutely comports with what I see around me and it comports with the reality that I see with one uh, possible exception. And this is one of the things that I think is uh, very problematic uh, for uh, the election. And that is that there are groups of people, particularly in rural areas, who uh, are kind of stagnant, who've dropped out of the workforce, the whole opioid epidemic. Um, And this is hitting the white working class. Uh, Donald Trump has very successfully uh, played to these people. And there is a sense of grievance and a sense that they're not getting a fair shake. And some of what you describe is um, consistent with this because these are not necessarily the type of people who are going to go out and get the skills that they need or whose children are. And they're sort of stuck in environments where the opportunities are not uh, as available. And one of the things over the years that has always struck me about the American economy, one of the most resilient parts of it, is mobility. Um, you know, when work ran out in Albuquerque, my father packed us in the back of an old beaten up car and drove us to Denver where there were more work opportunities. This was a common thing that happened uh, in the past. But people are not, according to the Census Bureau, are not moving in quite the ways they were. And exactly what uh, Mona was talking about in terms of some of these skills and the adaptability. So how... Um, do you pick that up in your data? Do you uh, see this as um, one group, at least, that's sort of getting left behind? And what do we do about those people? Yeah, so there are certainly uh, communities that have been that have been left behind, and there are certainly people and groups of people that uh, that are facing very difficult circumstances. Um, men without a high school diploma, men, men who never graduated high school, for example, are having a really hard time in the economy. Uh, I would say two things um, uh, in response to your comments. The first is that uh, those pockets of problems exist. They should be taken seriously. They should be addressed. We need better policy to help people in those situations uh, to advance economic opportunity to them. Um, a problem with the public debate right now is that we are confusing those pockets of problems with the broader picture of American life. The president did this in his inaugural address, characterizing the United States as uh, you know a bunch of rusted out factories. I think the phrase was scattered like tombstones across across the nation, uh, referring to American carnage. Uh, uh, the media does this um, uh, uh, as well. Uh, and um, it is it is uh, important, I think, to say, uh, yes, these problems exist. Yes, they need to be addressed. But this is not the norm. You know, most people are not opioid addicts, as tragic as, as, as opioid addiction is. Most people do not live in, in towns that were manufacturing hubs in 1970 and that, and that have been left, left behind. Most people are not high school dropouts. Um, and, uh, you know, this message that the game is rigged, that, that hard work won't pay off, uh, uh, that, uh, that all the gains from the economy go to the top, um, you know, people, 
people who are middle class, people who are not in those situations hear that message and 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 I think that's problematic. Um, to your point about mobility, I think you're you're exactly right. Geographic mobility. People people do move less. Uh, and um, and that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem. What it's a problem for the macroeconomy. One of the ways that the U.S. economy as a whole uh, recovers from uh, recessions and, and from economic shocks is by people moving from Albuquerque to Denver. Um, and it's a problem for those people because they would be much much better off if they if they were packing up the car and moving to to parts of the country with 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 more opportunity. Um, and and that's you know something that 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 should be should be addressed. I think. Damon and Bill, um, is there anything that Michael has said that strikes you as, as missing an important part of the American story? Well, uh, well, <coughs> Damon, why don't you okay, go first? I, I, well, either either I, you would jump off of my comments or vice versa. So I guess we'll try it this way. I mean, my I, I'm certainly open to this analysis, but I'm also a little bit more perhaps sympathetic to some populist arguments uh, than than you are. So let me delicately push back a little bit. There's, it strikes me that there's a, something very, um, there's very much an economist analysis that you're offering, and you know, great, we need economists, of course. But economists like to think at the aggregate level. They say things like you do in your Wall Street Journal piece comments about how the broader picture of America life, American life is, is good and strong. America is doing better than our biggest problems. The economy is delivering for American workers. But of course, that is the aggregate. And if there are pockets, as you've acknowledged, where this is not the case, communities that are suffering and in decline, and those regions and communities uh, kind of match up with emerging political cleavages, it can have an enormous political impact. And I don't, I don't hear a lot about what can be done about this and its kind of distortive effects on our politics that we're all living through from kind of both sides. Um, I, I guess, I mean, you mentioned in your piece, the old trumpeter line about creative destruction and how we focus too much on destruction and not the creative side. But the fact is that in a lot of communities, not most communities, but a politically significant number of them in this country, there is really destruction and very little creativity there. And to simply indicate, well, you should just pack up your U-Haul and move to another region of the country where there are more jobs. Yeah, that appeals to a certain kind of, oh, stop complaining uh, about your, your fate uh, attitude, which has a history in this country. But it also, you know, opens up the possibility for other kind of mischief-making politicians to say, to give a much nicer uh, a message to them, which is you're doing nothing wrong. You shouldn't be punished by this. This system isn't working for you. And we're kind of living through that. So, I mean, what is the response to that from someone who wants to make a, a sunnier case like you are? Well, that's a lot. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, I, um, uh, I guess, I guess the first thing I would say is that is that statistics are valuable because they they summarize information, um, and uh, uh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, would 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 um, uh, happily defend the use of statistics to characterize American life. Uh, of course, statistics, you know, uh, or aggregate statistics, uh, uh, don't capture 
everything. And, and that's why it's important to point out the pockets of, of, of problems that you point out. You know, even there, I mean, if you look at if you look at all the uh, uh, places that were disproportionately uh, heavy on manufacturing employment in 1970, the vast majority of those of those uh, uh, cities and counties are, are doing fine today. Um, a, a, a large number of them have transitioned successfully away from manufacturing to new industries. Uh, a, a, a large share of them are still manufacturing centers. Um, and, you know, there are some that, 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 that aren't doing well. Um, but, uh, but even among that group, even among the group of, of, of places that were, that were heavy on manufacturing, the overwhelming majority of those places are, are, are doing fine. Um, you know, we, uh, we need to do more to help people uh, in places where there's not a lot of economic opportunity. Uh, and we need to do more to help people who are struggling. Um, one idea that I've uh, advanced um, uh, is that we should give people financial assistance to relocate. Um, uh, you know, the benefits of, 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 of geographic mobility are clear. Um, it's not, you know, some policy fad. I mean, this is a, a really important thing that, 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 that uh, you know, economists acknowledge is important. People are, are not moving enough. So let's incentivize people to move. Um, you'd want to target those incentives in, in, in such a way that, that you didn't have the kind of mischief that, you, that, that, that you're worried about. But I think that could be done. Um, and, 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 and that can help. And that's one way of many to bring economic opportunity to uh, people in places where there isn't enough of it. <clears throat> well, really drilling down into this topic would probably not be too great for you know, a radio audience mm -hmm. because so much of it has to do with different sets of statistics and different interpretations of the same set of, of statistics. Uh, Why do you think the audience wouldn't like that? <laughs> well, I, I guess a sturdy 5% of our audience <laughs> might like that. And I'm about to speak to them and for them. <laughs> and the rest, <laughs> you can make a sandwich or something. <laughs> uh, let me just put a few things on the table. Uh, for, just for you to respond to. Uh, you know, I'd be... I'd be interested in your response to the much discussed Raj Chetty research showing that you know that previously in a, in a previous generation about 90 percent of men at age 30 and age 40 reported that they had done better than they were doing better than their fathers and for the current generation that statistic is down to 50 percent that's that's number one. Uh, number two is the difference between household earnings and individual earnings, particularly individual male earnings. As I read the time series, hourly wages for men have not moved very much in the past 50 years, but household incomes have moved up, up during that period for two reasons. First of all, more women have entered into the workforce and are contributing to household income. And secondly, while male hourly wages have stagnated, women's hourly wages have not. And so they're working more and contributing more per hour work. But 
you know, so what you if I wanted to summarize the past 50 years of economic history, I would say stagnation for men and great progress for women. Mm -hmm. And that helps explain some of the political dynamics that we're now that we're now witnessing. And it's, you know, and and just to add one more thing to that, the quality of family life when both parents are working has a very different feel. And a lot of people experience keeping up household income with greater labor input as a diminution of quality of life inside the household. And that's part of why people are discontented. It's not just the dollars. It's the amount of time that you have to engage in family activities and to do them to do them in a satisfying way. What it what it feels like when both parents are working and a child gets sick at school. You know, this is you know this is not a comfortable new world in many ways. And I'm not sure the economic statistics are going to pick up those qualitative features of life in the new economy. I could go on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't I, help interjecting the story that was popular in the in the 90s, possibly apocryphal, but that when Chelsea Clinton was sick and taken to the nurse's office at Sidwell Friends, um, call they, my they father. Said, my they, mother's too busy. Exactly. <laughs> Could you call my father? My mother's really busy. <laughs> I can believe yeah. that. So, yeah. this is, you know, you know, how do we, you know, how do we argue all of this productively? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so productive argument is possible um, on the uh, point about the Raj Chetty study, which is important. I address this in the book. Um, you know, it would be, I think, remarkable if 90 percent of people did not do better than their parents, if their parents were adults during the Great Depression. And if you look at the birth cohorts that that that, uh, that Dr. Chetty analyzes, I think that you know, explains quite a bit of it. I mean, the 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 uh, uh, the remarkable thing is that that ninety percent wasn't a hundred percent because uh, you know because it would it would. It, it, but the important question is whether you accept the fifty percent figure. Because if you do, then there's a problem. I I do not accept the the fifty percent figure, um, and and this does really get into the weeds. There's another figure in his paper, uh, which is a sixty percent figure. Um, if you if you if you read deep into the paper, I think the sixty percent figure is uh, more accurate than the fifty percent paper because fifty percent figure because the sixty percent figure attempts to uh, uh, adjust the data for uh, the changing uh, household composition, which is important to do when you're when you're looking at income, which is a very standard thing to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, in the paper, there's a there's a sixty percent figure that I think is is the superior figure, and that I would have picked as the headline figure. Um, then if you use it. <laughs> If you use a different and better measure of inflation um, to adjust uh, incomes over time, the inflation measure that the Federal Reserve Board uses, the inflation measure that the Congressional Budget Office uses, um, and the inflation measure that I use, uh, you end up, I think, with 67% for Chetty, um, or roughly thereabouts. So the 50% becomes two-thirds. That's much closer to the three-quarters that I find. Um, in 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 the data analysis that I present, so there's not that big of a discrepancy between um, what uh, what Chetty finds and and and, and, and what I report. Um, on your on your second point, uh, I think the way to argue uh, that issue productively is not to go back 50 years. 50 years is a long time. If you want to say wages have been stagnant, income has been stagnant uh, in the public debate. 
people hear that as referring to their own wages and their own income. There are not a lot of people who were earning wages and income 50 years ago who are still earning. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to a couple of them. (laughs) Mine have gone way up. This is a very elite cohort. (laughs) (laughs) Most people who are currently earning wages and income were not earning wages and income 50 years ago. Um, That's one of the reasons why I uh, go back 30 years, um, because that seems to me to be a a more relevant metric. If you go back 30 years, a lot of the issue of women entering the workforce um, that you that you mentioned has already played out. Um, And if you go back 30 years, you are uh, not conflating a period of stagnation with a period of growth. So there was a period of stagnation. If you go from, say, 1973 to 1993, wages for typical workers were stagnant or were declining. Um, If you look from the mid 1990s until today, they've grown by a third as I as I as I as I report in the book. I think it's better not to conflate those two periods. Um, I think it's better if, to characterize the behavior of wages and the behavior of income as having a period of robust growth following World War II, a period of you know roughly two decades of stagnation from the uh, early 70s to the early 90s, and then a period of uh, you know more or less growth for the last three decades. Um, you can, of course, you know, compute growth rates from 1973 to 2020 or from <clears throat> 1979 to 2020. Um, and that's a perfectly valid exercise. I just think it's, it's, it's not the best way to think about the data uh, for two reasons. Again, one, that's just going back too far for, for relevance in the public debate. And two, you're, you're using a base year in this period of stagnation with uh, an end year uh, in a period of growth. Better to just calculate the growth rate when things were growing, to calculate the growth rate when things were stagnant, and, 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 and to treat those two periods separately. Michael, you've um, see you've productive productive engagement is possible. Yes, it's possible, and you've given, but it's barely begun. I know it, <laughs> it is probably we're just scratching the surface, and I know that we're all incredibly interested in these subjects, and we would love to talk about these with you more at length at some point. But we have to move on to our other topics, for which you have given us a great segue because you mentioned. By the way, are you going to stay with us? Yes, like, I'll stay. Great, wonderful. So uh, you mentioned the president's uh, inaugural address and talking about these rusted out factories that were dotting the landscape, American carnage, and so on, which brings us to the State of the Union address this week, where, amazingly enough, everything has changed in the last two and a half <laughs> Everything uh, is great years, now. Everything is just the greatest it has ever been. What a turnaround. It's just remarkable. Um, so the, uh, the president's speech uh, uh, contained a number of, um, of whoppers, but um, and then, of course, there was the drama of the president offering to shake Nancy Pelosi's uh, hand. Sorry, of Nancy Pelosi offering to shake the president's hand and him not accepting that gesture and then her tearing up the sheet of paper. Um, let me, um, and people are welcome to talk about any aspect of this that they want, but uh, for me, this was a breaking point um, that has lo- been long uh, percolating. Namely, I've loathed the State of the Union Address circus for decades. Um, I think it is uh, an opportunity for members to hop up and down like jack-in-the-boxes um, 
and, uh, and, and it has become a purely television event. There's nothing that gets um, introduced into legislation or considered based on this speech and so on. So um, please feel free to jump in on any of this, but here is my, here is my proposal. This is something that could really happen. Um, assuming that she is still speaker next year, um, and assuming that, leave aside who the president would be, the Speaker of the House should invite the president to deliver the State of the Union message in writing alone. Which is the way it used to be done, It actually. was done that right. way when Jefferson was president. So, what do we think? Well, I, I have to say I'm sort of chomping at the bit here because <laughs> um, it... You and I worked for Ronald Reagan, and President Reagan started the tradition of recognizing people in the audience, and it was, you know, it was nice, and there were a few people. This turned into reality television, as, as everybody has said. Yeah. I mean, not only did he introduce people, first of all, I don't know if you counted this, I know we're all supposed to be colorblind, but most of the people he introduced were African American. There was a reason for that. I've been told by some of my uh, Trump supporting friends, he's going to do better with blacks this time than anybody imagines. Well, I don't know if he's really going to do that much better with African Americans, but he is doing that to try to appeal to the suburban women, etc. The other thing that, though, that he did with Rush Limbaugh giving him the Medal of Freedom, first of all, giving him the Medal freedom in and of itself is controversial. Rush Limbaugh is one of the more polarizing figures in America. And if you want to try to understand how we got Trump, all you have to do is have followed Rush Limbaugh and his radio show for a number of years. He helped us get to Trump. So that was just inappropriate, absolutely inappropriate. And even the giving the scholarship and bringing the father in, this is not, you know, uh, reality TV. This is supposed to be a dignified address. And as you said, it is the State of the Union. You worked on, I worked on State of the Unions during the, the Reagan years. These were, this was the time when you laid out your agenda for the coming year. You said what had, you know, what the State of the Union was today. And these are the things that I'm going to be working for, uh, in, in the next term. And there was none of that there. Well, I can't help thinking that and then I'll yield back the floor, <laughs> that actually in all of the respects that you described, that speech was an accurate representation of the State of the Union. <laughs> well, yes, I guess that's true. Yeah. I, I, no, I think that's, I think you, you're, in some ways you're absolutely right. I mean, it is, it was so polarizing. You know, I have very mixed feelings about Nancy Pelosi's little tantrum there at the end. Uh, I mean, I would have done something like that, but then I'm not Speaker of the House of Representatives. I think it probably wasn't a wise thing to do because of the optics of it. Uh, but you I certainly understand it. that you know, we are the grown-up party. Right. We are the ones yeah. who abide by yeah. norms and and, and tradition. Yeah. Right? You can't. Yeah. Uh, I, don't I think I, you can I have it. I wish she ways. hadn't. I wish she hadn't done it, yeah. just because it gives the Trumpus uh, something to, you know, put on yeah, a moral equivalence media. argument. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet the Democratic base loved it, though. Oh, yeah. I'm yeah. sure they oh, did. Oh, yeah, they did. I mean, yeah. as I say, I sort of was sitting there thinking, yeah, <laughs> but I'm not the Democratic base, but still, I... 
Um, so is anybody going to join my bandwagon of saying the, the, the Speaker of the House can simply say we don't invite you to come let to me propose address a, the... Let me propose a package deal. Okay. We get rid of both the del- the live delivered State of the Union and the Iowa caucuses. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, I would yes. also I, I would also say that uh, the president's inaugural address, <laughs> in retrospect, reads as though it was setting up the State of the Union that he developed, mm-hmm. that he delivered, because. If your baseline is American carnage, right, and then it, and then you can declare an American comeback, mm-hmm. well, that's that's more plausible than saying, well, you know, the economy grew two point three percent under Obama, and I've raised that to two point five percent. Right. Except which, I think he would have said that it's now growing at eight percent. I mean, you know, none of his numbers yeah. were real. Right. By the way, I've I've won a moneyless bet with Art Laffer. As okay. To what the 2019 growth rate. Oh, <laughs> good. <laughs> so, do um, we do we think that um, he will be an effective messenger for a morning in America campaign? That's a really good question. I mean, that's he, a really good question. Well, if you, know. you if you add a you, uh, <laughs> I guess so, right. <laughs> it's just, you know, he you know he he won by uh, 80,000 votes in three states appealing to people's anxieties and fears mm-hmm. um uh in concerns about the economy are are those people going to show up if if his message is everything is yes, great yes mm-hmm. because it has become such a cult that anything he does is automatically golden in their eyes and uh he really can do no wrong i don't know why he doesn't just go ahead and release his tax returns now nothing that they showed i mean he could be you know he could be the opposite of a billionaire he could owe billions of dollars and it wouldn't matter they would say well that just shows how brilliant he is because interest rates are low or i don't know they would say something you know so i i I don't think that even though you're right, I mean, it would be a complete change for him. And I don't think we have to worry about him staying Mr. Sunshine for very long because it's not in his nature. Um, in fact, he didn't. I mean, as of <laughs> not even 24 hours, as of, not even, you know, as right. of the rant from the White House uh, East Room this afternoon, he's, he's already back to his usual dark, suspicious, paranoid delusions. Well, it happens um, every time. I but, mean, uh, he, he is the ultimate mean reversion test. I mean, the, you know, those who doubt that mm-hmm. character and nature don't play a major role in human affairs only need to observe Trump. Every single State of the Union address has been presidential Trump. It's Trump goes in, he reads from a teleprompter, it's, you know, it's the... the the syntax and vocabulary are kind of a little dumbed down because he speaks in very short sentences and that's kind of all he can handle, but they're competent speeches. And he always has a little bump in his approval rating after it and people talk about how oh, he's finally become presidential. But then he goes out and he has a rally or today he shows up in the East Room of the White House and has a rant in which he uses uh, foul language, BS, not said as BS, but the full word in the East Room for perhaps the very first time, certainly by a president. And then, 
Certainly on a microphone. And, and, you know, outrightly (laughs) attacks uh, Democrats. Nancy Pelosi says, I don't, I doubt she even prays. I just, 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 just spewing venom out there. And immediately you see the mean reversion. You realize, oh yeah, he hit 49% in Gallup this week. The highest Gallup has had him his entire presidency. Maybe he really will win re-election. And then you see immediately, oh, in the end, the campaign is just going to be a series of rallies and it will be red meat for his rabid base. And he'll struggle to barely to barely get across the finish line and who knows what'll happen. But the idea, if he could stick with the Trump of the night of the state of the union, I think he probably would be in a good place to run a kind of version of morning in America, but he's incapable of doing it. So it it sort of isn't relevant. It sounds like, it sounds like you all would agree then that this um, theory that's floating out there, I think there's a piece in the uh, front page of Politico today, and I've seen it a few other places, this idea that there are no longer any swing voters in America, that every election is a battle of turn out your base, and uh, whoever succeeds in energizing their base uh, wins. And this is, by the way, the argument that Bernie Sanders is making, which is that you know, uh, he, he had said we need a big turnout in Iowa. Actually, he didn't get a big turnout in Iowa, but he seems to have come in narrowly First, uh, no, you're shaking your head, Bill. No, no, I'm just shaking my head about the overall thesis. Yeah, okay, because I, right. I know it's false. Okay, let's How hear. How do it. I know it's false? Yeah, I'm, I'm part, I'm part of a group, uh, a bipartisan group called the Voter Study Group, which mm-hmm. has brought together about 30 people across the political spectrum interested in high quality survey research, and we have what's known in the trade as panel data. That is, we have been able to track the same voters from election to election. So we're not just doing slices. Oh, yeah. We're yeah, not yeah. just doing slices. We are actually looking at voters. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to tell in 2016 how many Obama to Trump switchers there were and how many Romney to Clinton switches there were. Uh, and the numbers were considerably greater than zero, mm-hmm. and the and the share of Obama voters who went for Trump was almost double the share of Romney voters who went for Clinton mm-hmm. in a very close election. I can't prove that on a state by state basis, but a very close election that was more than enough to make the difference. So yeah. I know it's not the case. And then you know it. And then there's a mountain of survey research. Uh, NBC Wall Street Journal just came out with a survey last week with, and it found the following. Uh, Trump starts with 41% of the vote against any Democratic nominee. The Democrats, the Democratic nominee, whoever he or she is, begins with the identical 41% of the vote. The 18 in the middle go back and forth depending on the identity of the Democratic nominee. Now, maybe the purveyor of this thesis can explain away these numbers, uh, but the idea that the idea that it's only turnout, uh, I mean, I, a very good survey researcher took a look at the results in the 2018 midterm elections 
And it wasn't simply a function of turnout. There were plenty of people in the suburbs who changed their minds, at least in their party votes, between 2016 and 2018. So I wish, I hope that this thesis can be strangled in its cradle before it takes over. Well, I mean, can I can I briefly well, just say things, like the, the, yeah, prim- sure, the sure. premise Go ahead, of, of my comment that led to yours, Mona, which then led Bill to talk, was not that there are no swing voters. Actually, it was the opposite, because I think if Trump actually could sound the way he did at the State of the Union and run on that message consistently and not revert to a kind of rabid dog spewing of venom at everyone as his enemies, he actually could win quite easily in a re-election contest. Right, and right. I, and yeah, by him reverting yeah. in that way, he's like scaring off all the potential swing voters who might be tempted to vote for him. Yes. I mean, so specifically, he would do much saying. better with suburban yeah. women. Right. Yes. yes. But, but the biggest thing is going to scare off those swing voters is whoever the Democratic nominee is. And if it is Bernie Sanders, I'm sorry, Donald Trump is going to be reelected. So let's talk about where things stand. Look, um, the the results coming out of Iowa were a real disaster for Joe Biden. Um, I think, Bill, you would acknowledge that. Um, and uh, it, it it is looking now as if he is going to have a really tough time unless he can manage to do very well in New Hampshire, which he's not in the polls at the moment. Right. He's been going down every day. Right. Um, it is really hard to see how South Carolina saves him, in which case we are now faced with the possibility of having the Democrats nominate someone who we all think cannot beat Trump. Well, uh Democrats now are, let's say, center-left Democrats, are facing a version of the same problem that center-right Republicans faced in 2016. Correct. You put them all together, and there would have been a majority in 2019 to beat Trump. You put all the center- In 2016. In 2016. You you put all the center-left candidates together, and they they convincingly beat uh, uh, Mr. Sanders. Uh, and the results of a head-to-head contest between Sanders in 2020 uh, and any one of pl- the plausible center-left candidates in the race would be very similar to the results in 2016, which pitted Sanders against Hillary Clinton. But if you have three or four center-left candidates in the race and Elizabeth Warren ends up dropping out after South Carolina, uh, then that's the nightmare scenario for Democrats. And Elizabeth Warren knows that she is not going to be picking up the votes of the center-left candidates. She's the only person whose uh, who's departure from the race helps her is Bernie. So as long as Bernie's doing better than she is, I mean, I don't, I don't see how um, the, uh, the centrists can can win here. Um, furthermore, we have the problem. Of, you know, some people have been saying, "Well, the out the um, the outcome in Iowa after it finally got reported four or five days late, whatever it is at this point, <clears throat> and apparently was, inaccurately. Uh, yeah, inaccurate. The, the uh, yeah. We, okay, uh, I know it's a complete <laughs> screw up. Um, uh, but they're saying, well, Democrats succeed when they nominate a young, 
new, fresh candidate who inspires them and who's not too far to the left. And I guess the, the set from which they are drawing this global conclusion consists of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Okay. And JFK um, and Jimmy um, Carter. Well, I don't know. JFK, Jimmy Carter wasn't that young. And, uh, and okay, yeah, JFK. Was new. Yeah, he was new. Yeah, he was new. All right. He was JFK. New and, okay. And, and, okay. Yeah. And so it's... But, but, it, all right, but but the thing is, then you then you are faced. Who is that person this year? Well, so far in terms of who's done well, it's just Pete Buttigieg, and he has lots of problems. Do you want to bank everything on a thirty-eight-year-old who's the mayor of a tiny city and who's gay and who's um, untested in every way? And then, okay, so this boils down to, and now discuss. Uh, here's my proposal: discuss among yourselves. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg has brought an unprecedented amount of money to this race. It's not nothing. That's really important. But I do not believe he can win himself. He is a guy who was a former Republican. He is, he's got Me Too problems, apparently. He's a billionaire. Um, He's so many things that the Democratic Party uh, doesn't like. The whole stop and frisk thing. I mean, there are a million reasons. But... If he were to deploy his resources behind Amy Klobuchar, we could have a plan. Discuss. Uh, if my grandmother had wheels. <laughs> oh, no, it's a serious proposal. I mean, if he really is concerned that he does not want to see Donald Trump win a second term and that this is not a vanity exercise for himself, that he's really concerned that Donald Trump win, should not win a second term, and that's why he's doing this. I think he has. I think he believes that he has a strategy that, under a plausible set of conditions satisfied, could lead to victory. Uh, and as long as he believes that, he's not going to give someone else a billion dollars. I mean, that's the problem. Everybody who runs for president actually believes they might actually win, and and anybody who thinks otherwise has never dealt with candidates. And and so I think, you know, I think he does think he can win, Mona, whether if he doesn't win, he will pour his money into helping whoever the nominee is. I don't know. It certainly won't do that for Bernie Sanders. Uh, He might do it for Judge. He might do it for Amy Klobuchar. Um, but it doesn't look like either no, of I'm, them are going to emerge. I'm saying know, emerge. he should use this money I know, it, during I know. the primaries. But so he's I mean, not going to yeah. do that because he really yeah. does think he can win right. on Super Tuesday. And by right. the way, I can't I can't say with metaphysical certainty, as the late John McLaughlin used to put it, that yeah. he's wrong. Yeah. I can imagine a scenario yes, where there's chaos after the four contests in February, and he is positioned as no one else is to do well on Super Tuesday because he's there on the ground and in the air in a way that no other candidate Look, is. it goes without saying that I would be thrilled. <laughs> uh, me too. <laughs> but, I could vote for him I in a heartbeat. I doubt very okay. much that, that, uh, that Bernie Bro- Burroughs would vote for Bloomberg. A lot of them didn't vote for Hillary. Did you find that in your data? <laughs> <laughs> Look, yeah. uh, it is certainly, I'll, I'll say one more thing and shut up. It certainly would have been plausible in the fall of 2015 to say that someone who has been a Democrat and has run you know, on, you know, on a third-party ticket would be a deeply implausible selection as the Republican nominee 
for president, and look what happened. So the idea that party fidelity, and if that's such a big deal, someone who's someone who's been in politics for more than half a century and has identified with the Democratic Party for two years, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. the senator Cerny, from Vermont. Bernie so Sanders. party loyalty is <laughs> a much more var- much more of a variable than it used to be. I mean, I, yeah, my Damon? view about Bloomberg, uh, despite having some sympathy for him as a candidate personally, uh, is that the most likely... Uh, implication of his run is he's going to assure that Bernie Sanders gets the nomination because he's going to pull votes away from both Biden and Buttigieg, allowing Sanders uh, to to rise to the top in the same way that that uh, that Rubio and Cruz and some of the other centrist, more centrist Republicans enabled uh Trump to get the nomination four years ago. The next most likely scenario is that he assures that there's a brokered convention or a, 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 an open convention in which we have chaos. And so, in I mean, I, I my gold standard in these kind of horse racy questions is is uh, Nate Silver at five thirty eight, and he makes pretty he makes a pretty strong case that it really isn't possible in any plausible scenario for Bloomberg to outrightly win the most pledged delegates. He's getting in it too late, and even on Super Tuesday, the states where he's doing the best have the, the have not the most delegates available. So it's really much later in the process where he could actually start winning whole states. But by then, Sanders is likely to be very far ahead of him. So I I agree that, of course, Bloomberg must think that he can win or he wouldn't be doing it. But I think he's probably delusional about that. Stay tuned. Well... We'll reconvene right. this conversation in four weeks. Yeah, and then we'll know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, uh, it, the, the uh, look. A lot of us um, anti-Trump Republicans have a very strong case of 2016 PTSD, and so there is a tendency <laughs> to um, to fit today's events into that template and to see the dangers of you know this crowded field. Uh, everybody's vanity getting in the way, nobody wanting to get out and, and, you know, coalesce around one alternative. And, um, you know, and then there's the fact that the parties are so weak. Um, that, that was certainly something that was amply demonstrated in 2016. We kept waiting for, you know, they, they, what was that book that was so popular a few years ago? The Party Decides, you know, and what did we find in 2016? The party is an empty suit. There's no such thing. Right. It has no power. Right. Um, and um, how do we bring its power back yeah how do we bring its power back asks Michael Uh, well let me just drop a footnote here Uh, my colleague Jonathan Rausch co-authored a deservedly well-known and well-regarded piece in the Atlantic in December in which he talked about the kinds of political reforms that could among other things actually actually restore strength in political parties as effective independent agents in the political system. And it means undoing a lot of what's been done in the name of reform over the past 50 years. Yeah. Okay. Does anybody want to say a short word or two about what we do about Iowa and what is likely to happen about the Iowa caucuses going forward? Uh, I think we just saw the last Iowa caucus. You do? So what happens? Walk us through it, though, step by step. So, so the party, which we have all just agreed has no power, 
goes to the people in Iowa and says, you really screwed this up. Sorry. We're not, nobody's going to participate. No candidate is going to participate in your caucuses next year. How do they enforce that? Uh, actually, well, you should get my colleague at Brookings, Elaine Kmark, you know, who wrote a book called Primary Politics, which is sort of the book on all of this, and and who's also been on the DNC Rules Committee for more than a quarter of a century to explain this to you. But in fact, the one area where the party retains power is over the management of its own primary system. You know, the, dele- you know, the delegates, whether... A, whether delegates elected in a particular way are oh, recognized, are seated. Oh, okay. seated. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so there okay. are there are instrumentalities of power. Okay, all right, okay, that's good. So, do they um, switch to a primary? They have to. They have to. Okay. And as a matter of fact, uh, between between the last cycle and this cycle, the number of caucuses in the Democratic nominating contest was cut in half. Hmm. And there are many people who think that that should be a prelude to the outright prohibition of caucuses and replacing everything with primaries, which for all their defects are less distorted representatives mm-hmm. of public representations of public sentiment than the caucuses. By the way, uh, I'm sure you saw the little item that the Nevadans were about to use the same app for their caucus <laughs> until this happened. Now they've announced they're not, they're now, not but, going but, to. Can I ask Bill a question? Isn't isn't ranked choice voting better than the first past the post system? Well, I suppose, except what you saw in Iowa was a variant right. of ranked right. choice voting. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you like that? But, but wouldn't well executed <laughs> ranked choice voting. Be? Look, I think that uh, I think that as with other reforms, we ought to experiment on the local and state basis before we go national. As yeah, you know, absolutely. the state of Maine has just adopted ranked choice voting. Let's get it, give it a few cycles. Mm-hmm. Right. The California yeah. top two system, which was much ballyhooed when it was adopted about mm-hmm. 10 years ago, has not really delivered as advertised. And the history of- And <laughs> we now have Democrats running against Democrats yeah. And the, the history of political reforms backfired, mm-hmm. or at the very least, and this should appeal to you as a moderate conservative, you know, producing unintended consequences mm-hmm. that swamp the intended consequences is such a long history I think we ought to be really cautious about ranked choice mm. voting and anything else. Okay, I, I, I have one follow up with Bill. Um, uh, rank, what, what, what our friend Jonah Goldberg would call rank punditry. But um, <laughs> the uh, <laughs> last week, I think I asked you. You know, are you still saying you think Biden is in good shape, if, even knowing that after Iowa, New Hampshire, there's going to be this unbelievable bandwagon effect for whoever wins, especially if whoever wins takes both takes first in both contests now at the time you thought he was still going to be fine but he came in fourth yes all right so what what's your view uh my view is he's in trouble but it's recoverable assuming that new hampshire is the last the last contest that he loses in february Mm. okay and which is why I think a lot of focus, he has no hope that I can see of winning in New Hampshire. And the only question is whether he loses by single digits or double digits. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you know, the assumption was that he was going to come in second. And clearly that, that was the same assumption that a lot of people made about Iowa based on the survey research. I made it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the survey research turned out to be wildly off the mark, uh, which is why I think a lot of attention should rightly focus on New Hampshire. Should he just? Rather, skip- I am not New Hampshire. I mean Nevada. 
because yeah. because if he loses the first three, especially to the same person, then it's going to be a classic case in South Carolina of an irresistible force encountering an immovable object. And something's got to give, and I think it might be the immovable object. Should he just skip New Hampshire? Why doesn't he just say, I'm not going to win here. Bernie Sanders' state is very close uh, to this state. Um, I'm going to shore up my firewall in South Carolina. I'm going to spend some time in Nevada. and, and uh, It looks it looks, it looks weak. Yeah, I it mean, to weak. do it a few days before when, they, when he's just performed so badly in Iowa would look terrified. It'll look it'll look even weaker if he comes in fourth place in New Hampshire. But you know what nobody is saying and and I keep wondering is whether the whole impeachment process didn't hurt Biden more than it hurt Trump. I mean, we had hours and hours and hours of discussion of this supposed, you know, corruption on the part of the Bidens. And I think it had an effect. No, that's an excellent point. And I would add one thing to that, which is um, it wasn't just the beating up of Biden during this process. It was his utter, utter failure to take advantage of the opportunity and to come out swinging right. and to show that he was the one to be feared, which was the point that he would have wanted to make, see what he was willing to do to keep me down I'm because I'm such a strong right. candidate. And everything he's saying is not true and keep yeah, on that. Right. But no, nope, uh, he was he was timid. He was he was off message. He was stumbly. Um, he just was not equal to the moment at all. Sad right. to say. I agree. All right. Um, we'll know a lot more in a, in a few days. Um, so let us now come to our final segment where we talk about things that need attention. Uh, Linda? Well, if my week was not depressing enough uh, with impeachment, um, and as some of you know in this room, and now the audience will know, the loss of my beloved uh, 18-month-old puppy, um, I also decided that I was going to read the book American Dirt. And American Dirt by Janine Cummins uh, was a is a best. It's I think will be a bestseller. Um, she got a million dollars or more as an advance. It is about a uh, migrant mother and her son coming up north. I have to tell you, it's not a very good book. It's a kind of page turner, but it's not of, of good literary quality. But the reason I bring it up is because it is now being boycotted and trashed everywhere because the author's last name is Cummins, not something like Chavez or Martinez or oh. Sanchez. And it is an example, again, of the uh, identity politics uh, that has poisoned our culture. Uh, the idea that uh, you have to be a member of the group to be able to write a, a book about uh, an experience. If, if that becomes the norm, then we can just uh, say goodbye to literature. Well, everyone knows that Shakespeare couldn't understand the feelings of Desdemona because he wasn't a woman. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not to mention the <laughs> or war. Maybe, or maybe he was. <laughs> <laughs> In which case, he wouldn't have been, she wouldn't have been able to understand King Lear. <laughs> Did you have something you wanted to mention, Michael? Uh, the American dream is not dead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. That deserves excellent. more attention. It does. <laughs> and we'll look forward to it. It comes out the end of this month? Yeah. Excellent. Um, Bill. Uh, my father taught at Yale University for more than three decades, which is why I fi- follow events at Yale with more than ordinary interest. Uh, the most famous course 
for each one of his 35, my father's 35 years at Yale uh, was Vincent Scully's famous art history course, uh, which the university canceled this year on the grounds that it was quote unquote Eurocentric. Uh, and I hope I'm not drummed out of my party when I, when I say that this is the reductio ad absurdum of a certain line of argument. Oh, it's really hard. To, it is hard to fathom. Um, Dana. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite shocked that we are here at the end of an hour of discussion on a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark, and no one has brought up Mitt Romney, who was a, a very big figure in the news this week. It shows this happened 24 hours before our taping that he came out to say that he would be uh, voting in favor of one of the two articles of impeachment uh, to become the only person in American history in the Senate to vote against uh, a president of his own party in an impeachment trial. Um, very, I was very impressed, very moved by this. And so what I'm going to plug now is actually a column by our own Mona Charon, who wrote a very moving tribute yeah. to uh, Romney titled Mitt Romney, A Modern Man for All Seasons. Um, you know, I, I taught for a couple of years, about 20 years ago at, uh, Brigham Young University as a non-Mormon. And, uh, from that time on, I've been a, a real admirer of Mormons, very impressed with their culture and religion and, uh, the way that it instills a certain kind of moral seriousness and character. And, uh, Mitt really lived up to that, uh, yesterday, his speech. I think should be required viewing for all Americans as long as you can promise not to uh, curse and spit at the screen after watching it, as many Trump supporters will. But uh, that was a rare moment in our politics these days uh, where you actually sensed uh, something bigger and greater than uh, the kind of tawdriness uh, that dominates so often. Well said, Damon, and thank you so much uh, for the shout out. Um, I found it, I found it very surprisingly moving. Um, it is, uh, you know, one walked through this expecting that the entire Republican conference. I mean, Romney was a question mark, but uh, we we knew that that pretty much every Republican was going to vote to acquit, and then to see Romney do that in such a human way with so much integrity and reminding us that integrity is not dead in the hearts of everyone was um, was surprisingly powerful. And I, I'm, I thank him for it. I think we're all in his debt. Uh, I would like to mention something that gets um, one of, you know, there are so many things that get lost in this sort of fire hose of news that we're, we're all living through. But uh, I think this deserves to be remembered. Um, this week, uh, Rear Admiral Colin Green, who is the commander of the Navy SEALs, announced his resignation. This is yet another uh, high-ranking military figure to lose his post over Trump's decision to pardon uh, a number of American war criminals. This one, in this case, it was Eddie Gallagher, who was a former Navy SEAL. Um, the Navy Secretary, Richard Spencer, resigned over this already, and now Admiral Green has um, because he wanted to have peer review evaluate whether Gallagher should have to lose his trident that represents membership in the 
um, Navy SEALs, and the president warned him not to do this, and he did it anyway. And, uh, and so now he has been forced out. And uh, I just want to quote what former Navy Secretary Richard Spencer said on the occasion of his departure, which is he does not believe that President Trump, quote, really understands the full definition of a war fighter, unquote. Uh, how could he? Yes. yes, how, how could, he? could he? Those bones, well, those bones bone spurs. spurs. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. And you know, look, there are a lot of people who didn't serve, but nevertheless understand the fundamental values of this country. And unfortunately, the man in the Oval Office does not. All right. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Michael. And Thank you. Uh, I hope you'll come back because we're all really interested in your subject area and uh, we'd like to talk about it. Oh, I'd love to come back anytime. Okay, terrific. Thank you one and all. See you next week.